You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, Practical Wisdom for Everyday Life. I'm your host, Justin Vakula, with episode 77, God is a Question, Not an Answer, with Dr. William Irwin. Dr. Irwin, fond of the Stoic tradition mentioned in his book, joins me again on this podcast following his appearance on episode 12 to talk about his new book, God is a Question, Not an Answer. We discuss intellectual humility, virtues associated with doubt, and the importance of philosophical reflection. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can email me, connect with me on social media, find past episodes, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work through Patreon, PayPal, and referral links by visiting the Donate tab on my website. Dr. William Irwin is the Herve A. LeBlanc Distinguished Service Professor and Chair of Philosophy at King's College in Pennsylvania. He is the author or editor of numerous books, including The Simpsons and Philosophy, The Matrix and Philosophy, and Seinfeld and Philosophy. His writing has appeared in the New York Times blog The Stone, and he has been interviewed by numerous media outlets, including The New York Times, The Chronicle of Higher Education, USA Today, the BBC, NPR, and MSNBC. Irwin is best known for having originated the philosophy and popular culture genre of books, with Seinfeld and Philosophy in 1999, The Simpsons and Philosophy in 2001, and The Matrix and Philosophy, published in 2002. He was editor of these books and then general editor of the popular culture and philosophy series through Open Court Publishing. In 2006, Irwin left Open Court to become the general editor of the Blackwell Philosophy and Pop Culture series, which includes Metallica and Philosophy, published in 2007, and Black Sabbath and Philosophy, published in 2012, among other volumes. His newest book, God is a Question, Not an Answer, Finding Common Ground in Our Uncertainty, is now available on Amazon.com and other retailers. He joins me today following the book's recent publication. I'm grateful for having the opportunity to have read a pre-release version of the book and contribute with edits and thoughts. Thanks, Dr. Irwin. And on to the discussion. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. So the the book is, I hope, a different kind of book. It's not trying to argue against the existence of God or argue for the existence of God, but argue for the importance of the question itself. Is there a God? And if so, uh, what can we say about that God? Or how are the different ways we might think about that God? And why is the uh, question of God important even for people who have to their own satisfaction, like myself, honestly, come to the conclusion that there is no God. Mm -hmm. And within you mentioned the Stoics and Socrates, a model that's frequently mentioned in the text. Right. This is a Stoic podcast. The Stoics do figure in my uh, my view of God and my uh, my book. Right. Uh, the Stoics oftentimes spoke of uh, an amorphous entity, whether it be the uh, the Logos or Zeus, as in sort of some stand-in for the uh, the divine in general and uh, really as uh, as listeners to this podcast know the stoics are about cultivating a state of mind that's free from disruption by cultivating their uh, their thoughts and, and aligning them with the world I, th I find uh, in the stoics a great variety of conceptions uh, of the divine from uh, a sense that it's just purely a force of nature and nothing like what uh, 
moderns might call God to something that uh, might approach a more traditional view. Right. And looking at other traditions, you find that a tranquility and inner calm, acceptance, gratitude, a lot of these virtues found within Stoicism could be had from other traditions as well. We see uh, a similar pursuit within Buddhism, within Taoism. Neither of those need to uh, have any particular conception of God. Uh, many Buddhists do accept God or gods, uh, but not all do. And the uh, the kind of tranquility and uh, an acceptance of the world and, and suiting one's thoughts to the world and aligning them properly uh, are an important part of Buddhism and an important part of Taoism as well. And Taoism uh, functions with a concept of the Tao, the way, which some may want to interpret as a divine force, but it really isn't God. Uh, and in some ways, I like to think of it as uh, more a reality principle. There is more to the world than uh, is going on inside our own heads. And if we're not willing to uh, to recognize that, well, there are consequences to pay, as the Stoics recognize and the Taoists recognize, that if you try to go against the natural flow of things, you'll find that reality has a way of uh, smacking you in the face. Right. A lot of that starts with open-mindedness and humility, even looking at other traditions that are outside of your own. Even you mentioned the Epicurean schools and that the Stoics have drawn upon them, as Seneca does in his text, mentioning some wisdom from Epicurus, saying it's the wisdom that matters, not the person who said it. That, that's so important, right? To be able to look at other traditions and uh, recognize what value they have to offer us. For many students and, uh, and general readers today, there is great overlap between the Stoics and the Epicureans, although for many of them uh, at the time, they were fiercely competing rival schools, as, uh, as odd as that is to, uh, to recognize. But you mentioned, importantly, Seneca as drawing upon Epicurus and uh, other Epicurean philosophers and, uh, and recognizing the wisdom and, uh, and taking that uh, into play. And so th this is some of the kind of dialogue that I hope to find between believers and non-believers, finding common ground in our uncertainty and the doubt that we can cultivate and in the things that we can learn from one another and borrow from one another that work independently of whether one ultimately believes in God or not. You write about some common ground that we have, that we all experience doubt, maybe not the most ardent of believers or shall we say disbelievers, but we can find some common ground in not having certainty and living in the question, as you write. Yeah, to me, that's what philosophy is all about. It's, it's, it's living in questions, keeping questions alive and, uh, and seeking wisdom and practicing wisdom. And, and a lot of that wisdom is really bound up with the question, right? And, and so any honest believer will tell you that he or she has moments of doubt when he or she wonders, is this really true, uh, what I've been taught and what I believe? And in fact, it really isn't faith if there is no doubt. That's just a kind of feeling of certainty. And unfortunately, it's very popular in, in certain religious traditions, certain corners of Christianity in particular, an almost muscular idea of faith that is somehow without doubt. And, and that really takes us very far from what uh, the Christian tradition uh, has really recognized as important, the struggle and the commitment itself. And we see it in figures like Mother Teresa, who expressed her doubts, and figure I admire, Thomas Merton, who talks quite a bit about the importance of doubt and the importance of struggle and faith. 
and uh, that there's something uh, to uh, to recognize and and appreciate there. And and from the side of the the non-believer, there is uh, unfortunately sometimes the tendency to mirror the uh, kind of muscular faith with a sort of muscular non-faith, and saying that there is absolutely no possibility that there is a God of any kind. And that uh, seems to me just as flawed. One can be an atheist and, and in some sense proud of it, while nonetheless admitting doubt uh, that one has to live with the question and wonder about the question. Maybe the poster boy for uh, the good old atheists, as opposed to the uh, the new atheists, Jean-Paul Sartre, thought of his atheism uh, as a struggle, as a commitment to reaffirm the non-existence of God uh, by continually addressing the question and the issue for himself and recognizing uh, that uh, he had the feeling that he was a created being with uh, with a divine purpose, but then re-examining and reaffirming what he thought to be the evidence to the contrary. Right. And with that element of doubt, you write that we can have better civil discourse with others looking to gain understanding, looking to improve ourselves through conversation. I think that's that's right. Our goal in conversation need not always be to change the minds of those we're in conversation with, to bring a, a believer over to non-belief or vice versa, but to learn from them and to learn our own views by rubbing up against them in conversation. Of course, John Stuart Mill emphasizes this great deal, the importance of not silencing minority opinion or opinion of any kind, because we really don't know our own view unless we are in constant conversation with those who disagree with us. And also uh, adding to that, that uh, we can't get our, or we shouldn't get our information about what the opposing view is by reading partisans of our own side, whether they be political, religious, philosophical, but getting it, uh, as the uh, cliche uh, says, from the horse's mouth, and really hearing it from the other side, reading it from the other side. Even within Stoic texts, there's talk about the danger of the crowds and popular opinion, but it's not the case that we should withdraw totally from society, but still be part of it, engaging with the people, but still being able to maintain our moral character. Well, that's right. Epictetus warns of that quite a bit, right? That uh, when you when you go into public, broadly speaking, be aware of what you're doing. You can keep your calm and keep your stoic detachment. And in some ways, in, in religious language, we can say that you can be in the world, but not of the world. You shouldn't necessarily see yourself as some sacred priest descending from the high mountain to dwell among the commoners. But and, and maybe we don't get enough of this in, uh, in some Stoic texts, but, uh, but to learn from interaction with those that one disagrees with and, and those who live differently from us as well. Right. It was even a Stoic role model of who was a Diogenes who saw the young boy drinking water from his hands rather than using a cup. And he thought, oh, what a fool I was for wasting my time with this cup when I had perfect hands to do that. There you go. Diogenes, the cynic, learned from dogs. He learned from young boys, right? Uh, we can learn <laughs> from everyone, maybe especially dogs. You also mentioned here some parallels with the Stoics of reason and justified true belief being paramount rather than faith or a feeling of certain things being right. 
Stoic wisdom is is really very much based on on reason and based on our traditional definition of knowledge as true justified belief. We need to constantly reaffirm our beliefs in the in the face of evidence. I do sometimes think uh, that at least some of the Stoics have a sort of feeling, intuitive quality to them. And in some ways, that does parallel some of the other traditions that we mentioned in uh, our initial conversation, Buddhism and and Taoism, where uh, in some ways there is a more intuitive quality to it. However, sometimes blink moment or intuitive quality may come first, and we don't really fully realize that there's reason operating underneath it, right? So the classic story on, on, on those lines, right, is of the, uh, the experienced firefighter who is in the, in the house and uh, can't tell uh, why something's not right, but has a sense that something's not right and orders his, uh, his crew out. It turns out that there was a fire in the basement or wherever that uh, is going to cause the house to collapse. Oftentimes, it's, it's reason operating on, on a level that we can't directly a- access through conscious awareness or thought upon first notice, but uh, upon subsequent contemplation, we can see the reason that underlies what might seem like purely a feeling or an intuition. And some of that is just gained through experience and understanding. Exactly right. And within Stoicism, we see the case of questioning everything, whether it's popular convention, the use of our time, what's really worth it, how we can find meaning in life, that we might have these popular ideas that were brought about in childhood, as you write in your book, maybe a certain religious tradition or philosophical tradition. But later on, we come to question those and we'll be better off for it, even though some of that doubt might be uncomfortable question everything has got to be the uh, the slogan for philosophy and and really for raising a philosophical child it's fine to have traditions cultures religions etc perhaps in which uh, we raise our children but we need to teach them to think critically and to question everything really from the beginning including our own authority and our own judgment that's a difficult thing to do it, it uh, harks back to a word that you used before just in humility right uh, mm. as parents as educators as uh, as adults we need to have humility in the face of what we think we know right so if, if we go back to the the doubt that uh, really sparks this conversation one of the uh, the things I like to uh, to point out out to uh, to people in conversation is that you have to indicate a certain confidence level in what you believe and even in what you claim you know. So if we think of, for example, the margin of error that that uh, polls come with, political polls come to mind uh, most often, right? And uh, you and I are both in uh, in Pennsylvania, and on election day, Donald Trump was outside the margin of error for winning Pennsylvania, and so people complain that the polls got it wrong, etc. Et but if you read the fine print on the polls, they indicate a ninety five percent confidence level. So all that meant is that for the uh, the pollsters, there was a ninety five percent chance that uh, the uh, election would turn out within the margin of error. Really, we have to admit a margin of error and a confidence level with many things, if not all things in life. Right. You're right, too, that uncertainty isn't as bad as we might think it is. We can think something is bad now, but it can be good in the long run. You give an example of a relationship loss that can devastate us in the present, 
but can lead to a good end, perhaps leading you to question whether it's all worth it or whether we want to live a single life or perhaps the person that we had admired wasn't such a great one after all. Uncertainty itself is, is not a bad thing. We can come to uh, to learn to live with it and actually appreciate it, right? Having uncertainty makes life in many ways more interesting, not knowing, admitting that we don't know. Uh, in some ways, uh, appreciating the wonder of the universe, having some awe for the, uh, the world in which we live in that it's not like some boring repeat that we're watching on television where we know how things turn out. Uh, it's much more interesting to live a life with uncertainty where we don't know for sure the way that things will go, the way that things will turn out. And of course, the the example that you mentioned about, for example, a relationship that uh, seems like uh, the end of the world when it when it ends turns out perhaps to have been a good thing in the, uh, in the long run uh, because we get to become the person that uh, we are better at being maybe a more poignant example even is a is a real life one that i mentioned in the book my father was forced into early retirement in his 50s and it was terrible it was devastating for him at the time but he ended up dying at the age of 69 of cancer and had he not been forced into early retirement he very likely would have worked till he was at least 65 if not right up till near the uh, the time of his death at at 69 and it, this was a, a person who greatly enjoyed his years of retirement and the time that it uh, let him spend with his grandchildren etc uh, so I guess the, the basic message there is that what looks like a bad thing at the moment doesn't necessarily turn out to be a bad thing, sometimes through luck and fortune and circumstances, but also through our own efforts and what we make of the situation we find ourselves in. Right. The Stoics call for us to reframe those situations and accept the fact that adversity will be present. Reframing is, is just so important, right? Uh, and particularly reframing our counterfact and, and, and seeing the way that a situation actually could have been worse and seeing the way in which the, uh, the seeming unfortunate event turns out potentially to be a good one. Yes. You also write that ego can be quite a barrier to experiencing doubt. You write that we can be very invested in being right but we ourselves can be the easiest to fool. Yeah, e ego is, is really the uh, the terrible obstacle, isn't it? Who, who doesn't like to be right just about everything? And as they say in the information age, right, there are more and more issues about which everyone thinks they need to have some opinion and uh, you become vested in having the right opinion about it. I think the, the line that uh, you're referring to there, uh, Justin, is if I can get it at least close to right, comes from the, the physicist Richard Feynman, where he talks about how the easiest person to fool is yourself, right? And it's true, right? Because uh, if I have an idea, if I have an argument, and uh, I present it to somebody else, well, they're not necessarily as vested as I am in it being right. They can look at it objectively. And, uh, Feynman is, of course, referring to tendency of a scientist to want to see his or her hypothesis confirmed, right? And, uh, well, that this is why even after an experiment has been performed, it needs to be replicated by somebody else. And this is, uh, in some ways, more successful in, uh, in the physical sciences than we've seen uh, in the social sciences, a crisis of, uh, of replication because our biases can creep into even the uh, seemingly objective studies that we're performing. 
Right, and others can keep us in check, whether they be colleagues or good friends. You write about that to be a true friend, we can tell truths which might be uncomfortable, and those could be some great moments where maybe we haven't noticed something wrong about the way we are doing something or a flaw about ourselves that friends can mention. That's right. Uh, a true friend, right? This gets uh, in some ways into uh, Aristotelian friendship, which uh, I, I think uh, fits with Stoic friendship as well. Right. A, a good friend, a true friend is not someone with whom you just have good times and uh, who is useful to you, but actually helps you improve in being the person you want to become. I, I think for that matter, it's important to have good friends who disagree with us on important issues. It's nice to have people with whom we agree and with whom we share similarities and, and, and interests, but we can fall into the troubled blind spot of, of being bubbled in too much if we have friends who simply agree with us on all the uh, seemingly important issues in life. That's right. You write about the dangers of surrounding ourselves with echo chambers or yes-men that we should engage with those with whom we disagree for many reasons to better understand their positions, to challenge our own, and to be closer to achieving truth. Yeah, so th this harks back to the discussion we were having before with, uh, with John Stuart Mill and the importance of minority opinion. We need to be in, uh, in contact and in regular contact with people who we disagree with and who we also respect in that disagreement uh, for our own betterment, our own improvement, people who will call us on our, our, on our BS and uh, help us to become the person we want to be, even if they don't necessarily share our viewpoints and values on everything. And uh, of course, the, uh, the idea of the echo chamber being bubbled in certainly has its resonance in, in political debate. And uh, we also see it in religious debate as well, where we tend to surround ourselves with people we agree with, uh, both in person and online in our social media. We really need to watch out, I think, for, for monocultures. I have uh, a friend of mine uh, who has a, a fun analogy for dealing with, uh, with monocultures, uh, where he talks about zombie guts. And uh, I, I'm not a watcher of, uh, of The Walking Dead. I don't know if you are, Justin. Uh, apparently, one of the ways, uh, at least in some early seasons of uh, of Keeping a, a zombie off your uh, your tail would be to rub some zombie guts on you, and the scent would uh, would throw them off. They'd think you're a zombie, so why bother with you, right? You know, you can find monocultures in the workplace, within a family, within a whole profession, within a neighborhood. Sometimes we don't fit in. I know I find myself not fitting in to some monocultures uh, where uh, I spend a good bit of time. And sometimes the uh, response uh, is to rub some zombie guts on myself. It's not worth having an argument with, uh, with a person about a particular issue at a particular time. And so it seems the safer route to rub some zombie guts on us. When I googled this, uh, I found some online discussion about it. And again, I'm not a, a Walking Dead fan, so I don't know how uh, how closely this uh, tracks to the uh, the reality of the discussion. There's, and they were saying, well, this was a, a pretty terrific way of keeping zombies off your tail. Why didn't people do it more? And uh, one person was saying, well, you, you risk infection when you rub, rub zombie guts on you. And 
So I, I began thinking through that analogy a little bit further, right? One of the problems that comes when you metaphorically rub metaphorical zombie guts on you is that uh, you in some way risk diluting, subverting your own views. If you pretend too much, you may lose track of what you really believe and, and why you really believe. But it's a real challenge, right, to figure out when it's important and when it's worthwhile to uh, speak up about what you believe and, and when you should simply or not believe uh, and when you should simply uh, rub some zombie guts on and, and go along with things. Uh, the, the real problem with, uh, with monocultures, uh, as I see it, is, is the presumption of agreement. I run into this more often than I care to, that uh, somebody will make a snide comment or a joke, etc., that I actually find pretty uh, annoying or obnoxious and uh, doesn't agree with my view or worldview at all. But rather than call them out on it and uh, make everybody uncomfortable, I just kind of uh, falsely chuckle along. And that's, that's rubbing zombie guts on myself. Right. And you talk in your book about mainstream media outlets that would be particularly harsh toward conservatives or left-leaning people and not really thoughtfully considering perspectives, perhaps only focusing on the most extreme or creating straw men. Yeah, that, that's the problem, right? Uh, that particularly when it comes to politics and, and you can choose your, uh, your, your source of news, you often get only a straw man of the opposing view if you're choosing to get your news from a left-leaning outlet or a right-leaning outlet, etc., you know, we, we naturally tend to do this, right? We naturally tend to seek out those who agree with us. And we like to think we've learned about those who disagree with us. But we're often getting caricature, a straw man from the other side. Speaking of which, first aired the, these ideas in a, in a New York Times article. I had used a phrase that some people took a great deal of umbrage uh, with because they, they thought that I was in some way throwing all atheists under the bus. I used the phrase an honest atheist, by which I meant to suggest somebody like myself pens to almost anything that he or she says, but I could be wrong and admits uh, that there is room for doubt in his or her worldview. By, by using that phrase, I didn't mean to suggest that most Atheists are not honest atheists in that way. I simply meant to draw attention to the fact that some are not. I heard very loudly in the comments section and through email afterward, actually from a good number of, the, of atheists who are not uh, what I would consider honest atheists, who <laughs> got very angry at me for, for using that phrase and and for suggesting uh, that there was any room for doubt concerning whether there could be a god or not. Rather ironic in that way. And, and I, I think a lot of the, uh, the anger came in particular from thinking that I was suggesting to them that they should really wrestle very seriously with a particular conception of God that maybe they were raised with, an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good God, etc. And, and that really wasn't what I was meaning to suggest at all. All I was meaning to suggest is that it's possible that there could be some kind of God, and uh, it's a big world of, uh, of gods and religions out there, and uh, there are well-meaning, sincere, authentic believers, educated and scientifically informed believers, and that's the kind of thing that should make a person like me pause and say, well, I could be wrong, and these are people worth conversing with and learning from. 
Right, so to not so glibly dismiss and even ask about, well, what can I learn from the tradition? In your book, you write about some of the benefits that can be associated with prayer, and even some atheists will engage in similar rituals, whether they be meditation, nighttime reflection, journaling. That's right. Uh, and, and this is part of, uh, I, I know what's become important to many Stoics, uh, the idea of journaling and, and self-reflection, right? And that need not be religious in its uh, in its formation or its orientation. And uh, Sam Harris, for example, has a whole book on, on meditation called Waking Up. And he talks, frankly, about how much he's learned from Buddhists and Hindus and the practice of meditation and uh, doing retreats with them, etc. I'm a practitioner of meditation myself. I think it's been long recognized that meditation can have benefits across religious traditions and outside of religious traditions. One place that Harris doesn't go, and I suppose uh, I I'm not sure that he would go, place that I take it further, as you mentioned, is to prayer. Prayer seems uh, perhaps a bridge too far to atheists because uh, they may conceive of prayer as directed toward a deity. And how can you have speech directed toward a deity if you don't believe in a deity? But as I make the case in the book, you don't need to believe in a deity or address prayer to a deity. So I, I give one example in the book that I particularly like is the uh, Tibetan prayer for immeasurables, where basically we're saying, may I have compassion, may I have sympathetic joy, may I have clarity of thought, may others as well. But to take a, a prayer that will be familiar to most people and which has really good stoic resonance to it, we can think of the serenity prayer, right, mm -hmm. which goes, God, grant me the serenity to accept the people, the, the, uh, the, people, the things that I cannot change. Sometimes the things are people courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, if we if we change the God grant me part to may I have right may I have serenity to accept the things I cannot change courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. We have a prayer and like the Tibetan prayer that I mentioned, it's not necessarily directed toward a God. Even if you want to direct it toward the universe or the logos or some stoic conception or toward uh, the Tao or toward the non-existent God, if you feel the need to, uh, to speak in terms of a direct address, you can even as an atheist come up with some form of that that makes you comfortable and you don't need to think that anyone is listening and perhaps it's even better if you don't think anyone's listening. I, I conceive of it myself as uh, a bit like singing in the shower or singing in my car. Given that I can't carry a tune, it, it's good that nobody's listening. It, it actually is good as a form of expression, as a way of self-reflection, as uh, a way of getting uh, in touch with, with humility, expressing gratitude as well. Gratitude can be a tough one from the atheist perspective, right? Because in some ways, if there is no God for whom uh, or to, to whom one should be grateful, become for things like health, the bare existence of the universe itself, it's more of a challenge than it is for a religious believer. However, uh, I think it, it makes perfect sense to, uh, to cultivate gratitude and express gratitude in general and in the abstract, even without the existence of God. And, and a certain form of atheist prayer can be a fine way of doing that. Right. You mentioned Richard Dawkins even talking about us being the lucky ones that we have a chance to exist, whereas that could have easily not have been the case. That's right. I don't think that, that Dawkins 
has cultivated prayer himself, but he does have that same basic insight, right, of expressing gratitude for the the sheer good fortune of uh, all the uh, combinations of DNA that could have come together that here I am in this one. You and I are recording this, uh, Justin, during the uh, the Christmas season, and, uh, and, and Dawkins, among other atheists, recognize that they enjoy singing Christmas songs, right? And why not, right? Uh, you don't have to literally take seriously the uh, theology behind any Christmas song to nonetheless enjoy the singing of it, and sometimes the singing of it together with other people, and the feeling of, uh, of transcendence and being part of something bigger mm-hmm. than yourself when you're harmonizing. Right. Religion absolutely doesn't have a monopoly on this. And we could even rub the zombie guts here. That's it. Get a little zombie guts on if you need to. But but uh, don't let religion have a monopoly on songs that you like, on meditation. And in the book, I'm trying to make the case of something that would seem to clearly be the province of religion prayer. I'm saying don't let religion have a monopoly on that. Right. Even in the Stoic text, there's talk of nighttime reflections in reviewing your day, how it went, and noting how you can improve in the future. Absolutely. Uh, that, that, uh, that, of course, is something that religion doesn't have a monopoly on. And even within some religious traditions, there's a history of critical thinking, that wrestling with God as depicted in the Old Testament, and as you write, many Jewish traditions. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The idea of faith as a struggle, right? The, the Old Testament is full of the story of the people of, of Israel struggling with their belief and their faith and their commitment to God. And in the best of the, uh, the Christian tradition, we see that continue as well. That's something we need to recognize and uh, applaud, living with the question. You may not uh, agree with, uh, with a Christian's assessment of, uh, of the evidence and, and the reasoning and the argument, but uh, this is really the, the point of the subtitle of the book, Finding Common Ground in Our Uncertainty. Any, anybody who can admit that there is uncertainty, that there's doubt and there's struggle is somebody who's uh, potentially a good conversation partner, dialogue partner, and someone we can learn from. Right. It's much different than the tradition I was raised in, where it was the common idea that questioning God or doubting God could be sinful or it's an influence from Satan. Well, that that, that is a very unfortunate uh, tradition, right? And I, I, I talk about in the book, at the, in the very end, reflecting on, on my own life history in, in, in this regard, where I grew up in a very... Uh, strictly Catholic upbringing for the first uh, 14 years of my life. But then I got to, uh, to high school and I had Jesuit priests who taught me to question and uh, taught me not to take the Bible in any way, literally, and uh, learn about who wrote the Bible and why, and to question everything that I had been previously taught. And uh, so for me, ironically, I, I arrived at my, uh, my non-belief thanks to believers. And, and, you know, these are the kind of people who, though they maintain faith themselves, I always have tremendous respect for and always seek out as uh, continuing uh, discussion partners. Yeah, so it's an unconventional approach and engaging with other people, questioning your own ideas. And surely we could see a lot of growth in that. We can even reflect on positions that we've held in the past and perhaps inductively reason that Many of our positions will change in time, so let's engage and come to question our ideas. 
Well, that, that's absolutely right, right? We're all wrong about a great many things right now, including things that we feel quite certain about, right? And so this sort of harks back to that, what's your confidence level in what you believe, right? Uh, with the 95% confidence level that the election is going to fall within the uh, margin of error, right? What is your confidence level in whether or not there is a God of any kind, of any sort, right? Uh, or to move into any other issue that may be important. And uh, a question I like to ask myself, question I would put out there to others is, what's the la when is the last time that you changed your mind about something important? Because the chances are that I am wrong about some important things right now. And uh, to live philosophically is to live with openness to questions and answers and to self-correct over the course of time. I'm, I'm not going to, no matter how long I live, uh, get to the point where I'm error-free and where I'm not wrong about anything important or big. But if I live with the question, really, in, instead of uh, firmly believing I've got the final answer to every question, I, I increase my chance of correcting myself over the course of time. Good. And that's a powerful reason people might want to come and read your book and a lot of what they can gain from it. And I'm sure it's on sale at fine retailers everywhere, including Amazon, right? One hopes. Uh, fine <laughs> retailers and even lousy retailers will take anybody who's selling the book, but certainly it's on Amazon, among other places online, and hopefully in your local Barnes and Noble at this point. Right. And surely can arrive before Christmas. <laughs> it's, the, it's the perfect Christmas gift or Hanukkah gift, or whatever other gift you may be gifting. Right. And for those who are listening around the time this is being recorded on December 9th, they can come and hear you speak. On January 5th, you're going to be speaking for the NEPA Free Thought Society in the Wilkesbury, PA area. I'm looking forward to that, Justin. Do we have a, a place and time and all of that yet, or is that to be determined? Right. That's January 5th at 3 p.m. at Costello's Avenue Salads in Kingston. Terrific. I'm looking forward to, to seeing you there in person and, and meeting uh, some of the rest of the society and anybody else who might be listening who can pop in. Great. Anything else on your end that you'd like to leave people with? Well, uh, actually, I've got another book recently out. Maybe I could mention that since you're leaving me sure. generously the uh, the space of time uh, here. I have a, a book out called Little Siddhartha. It's actually a novel, and it is, uh, as I conceive it, a sequel to Herman Hesse's famous novel Siddhartha. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's read that book will know the uh, character Siddhartha, a fictionalized version of the Buddha, has a child. And what happens to the, uh, the child, the son, is, uh, is left unclear at the end of the original book. And so I've taken up that question in my sequel, Little Siddhartha. And so the, the book deals in some ways with questions that we've been discussing, right, uh, about uh, how to live a life that's open to change. And in the original story of Siddhartha, he undergoes quite a lot of change and takes on different lifestyles and rejects previous beliefs. And we see similar path for his son in the, uh, the sequel that I've written, Little Siddhartha. So if anybody uh, is interested, I'm always glad to, to hear from, from readers uh, of anything. That I've written, uh, including this uh, new book, uh, God is a Question, Not an Answer, or this other uh, work of fiction, Little Siddhartha. Good. And you also have the free market existentialist. I've discussed that with you on a previous episode of the podcast as well. That's right. Uh, and again, 
readers uh, always glad to, to hear from people agree disagree find a flaw in what I've said help me to change my mind and uh, and, and grow I always uh, appreciate the opportunity all right and if you can and I'll include this in the show notes include where people can reach you online email social media other places great yeah I'm always glad to hear from people so you can reach me via email my name William Irwin at kings.edu, K-I-N-J-S dot E-D-U. And you can find me uh, on Twitter, William Irwin 38 and on Facebook. Always glad to connect with people via social media or through email. Thank you. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com where you can email me, connect with me on social media, find past episodes, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work through Patreon, PayPal, and referral links by visiting the Donate tab on my website. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordano's symphonic metal group Fairyland from their album Score to a New Beginning. John Bartman offered free consultation and audio edits for episodes 51 through 63. Thanks to generous patrons and fans of this podcast who help support my work. Have a great day.